Our scripture reading today is from Judges, chapter 7, and we've been doing a, a series on uh, Gideon, who is a judge, and so this is the third part, um, and we basically, the first two parts covered the parts of the story where Gideon was essentially called to save uh, the people of Israel who were suffering under oppression by the Midianites who were occupying most of Israel at that time. And we found out last week that basically the Midianites, the Amalekites, and the people from the east, whoever they are, um, further enemies of Israel, were gathering in a place called the Valley of the Jezreel. And um, so they were gathering and quite possibly to mount some kind of military effort against Israel. So there was kind of economic oppression going on that we know about, um, but it's quite possible these enemies are gathering to really just wipe people, wipe out the nation if, if that, maybe that's what was going to happen. There's no way of going for sure, but troops, a, a massive fighting force is gathering sort of in the heart of Israel um, and likely to, to try and, and do some sort of military conquest of the nation. Um, and that is the context into which Gideon is called and God says, I'm going to save my people through you, Gideon. And Gideon at first doesn't believe and kind of argues about it. But by the end of last week's reading, we got to a point where Gideon uh, is now ready after uh, testing God's will and potentially testing God's patience. Um, Gideon is ready uh, to, uh, to go. He's, he's, he's sent out uh, messengers throughout uh, several tribes of Israel. And people are, have gathered um, to, to fight against the, the oppressors. And so that's what Judges 7 is about, um, is in this context. So that's uh, kind of the background you need to know in order to understand this chapter. Um, the scripture won't be projected on the screen, mainly because it's a really long reading, and uh, that would be lots of slides for somebody to prepare. Um, so you need to be attentive and, uh, and, and really listen to this uh, text this morning. Then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, he was given that name. Jeroboam just means to contend with Baal, which is an opposing god of, uh, of Israel. So then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the troops that were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them, below the hill of Moray in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The troops with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Israel would only take the credit away from me, saying, My own hand is delivered me. Now therefore proclaim this in the hearing of the troops. Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home. Thus Gideon sifted them out. Twenty-two thousand returned home, and ten thousand remained. Then the Lord said to Gideon, The troops are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will sift them out for you there. When I say, This one shall go with you, he shall go with you. And when I say, This one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So he brought the troops down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, All those who lap the water with their tongues, as a dog laps, you shall put to one side. And those who kneel down to drink, putting their hands to their mouths, you shall put to the other side. The number of those who that lapped was three hundred. But all the rest of the troops knelt down to drink the water. Then the Lord said to Gideon, 
with the 300 that left, I will deliver you and give the Midianites into your hand. Let all the others go to their homes. So he took the jars of the troops from their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel back to their own tents, but retained the 300. The camp of Midian was below him in the valley. That same night, the Lord said to him, Get up, attack the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you fear to attack, go down to the camp with your servant, Pura. And, uh, and you shall hear what they say, and afterwards your hands shall be strengthened to attack the camp. Then he went down with his servant here to the outposts of the armed men that were in the camp. The Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley as thick as locusts, and their camels were without number, countless as the sands of the seashore. When Gideon arrived, there was a man telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, I had a dream, and in it a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell, turning up, it turned upside down and the whole tent collapsed. And his comrade answered, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, a man of Israel, into his hand, God has given Midian and all the army. When Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Get up, for the Lord has given the army of Midian into your hand. After, he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, Look at me and do the same. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then you also blow the trumpets around the whole camp and shout, For the Lord and for Gideon! So Gideon and the hundred who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. When they had just set the watch, and they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands, so the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars, holding their left hands the torches and then the right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place all around the camp. And all the men in the camp ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the three hundred trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his fellow and against all the army. And the army fled as far as, far as Beth. Shita, towards Zerarah, as far as the border of Abel-Meholah, by Talib. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali, and from Asher, and from all Manasseh, and they pursued after the Midianites. Then Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites, and seize the waters against them, as far as beth Barah, and also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they seized the waters as far as Beth-Barah, and also the Jordan. They captured the two captains of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. And they pursued the Midianites. They brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon beyond the Jordan. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Loving God, we do give you thanks this morning for your word. 
And we ask that you can give us insight and understanding into it by your Holy Spirit. Amen. This morning, we're going to talk a little bit about fear. There's a lot of fear in this story. And I'll share with you, to start with, uh, one of my own fears that uh, used to be a much more dominant in my life than it is now. When I was in grade 11, in high school, uh, my friends uh, decided that they just loved uh, plays and acting and uh, talked to our English teacher at the time and said, could we put on a play and uh, see if we can invite the school? And I went along with this. Uh, because I didn't, you know, they were my friends, not because I was in any way interested in being in a play and standing up in front of the whole school and acting. That was the last thing I would ever have wanted to do. But they were my friends, so I guess I had to be in it in order to stay in my group of friends uh, as a grade 11. Those are the kind of decisions you make, right? And um, so the English teacher agreed, and uh, they kind of chose to play it. And for whatever reason, they wanted to do Shakespeare. And uh, I don't know why, but uh, they chose uh, As You Like uh, Shakespeare. And so I was a pretty good singer, and that was something that I knew I could do. If I had to do anything in front of people, I could sing. But I was not going to, you know, if I could limit acting or I would memorize lines, it was easier to remember songs. I could do that. And there are actually two uh, parts in As You Like It for singers. And so we didn't have a lot of actors wanting to be in it. So uh, the, the teacher managed to put those two parts together for me. And uh, because no, none of my friends wanted to sing, right? So most people don't want to sing. And so I was a bit different. Um, and so I got the singing parts. And I thought, okay, that's relief because at least I can do that. They'll put me in some weird costume that I don't want to wear, but I can at least stand on the stage and sing. Well, as we started doing rehearsals, we had a lot of fun together, and uh, one of the things that started happening was that the two uh, boys who were going to play the lead, they were going to share it on, uh, it was going to be four nights, and on two nights it would be one guy, and two nights it would be the other guy. Uh, they started going to hockey practice instead of going to play practice. And suddenly, we had no Orlando lead as you like it with, you know, probably a third of the play are his lines. And the teacher came to me and said, Matthew, I think you should be our Orlando. Because all the other boys have got all their parts and they've been working on all their lines and they've already rehearsed those. And you seem really good at this. And I said, well, that's just because I'm good at singing, and I'm OK standing up and saying, but I, I don't want to do this. And then I was just terrified. And that was my fear. And uh, I liked the teacher, and I talked to my parents, and they encouraged, I guess, <laughs> me to do it. And I went ahead, and I, and I ended up doing it, memorizing my lines, even up to about half an hour before the first performance, I was still trying to memorize my lines. And uh, we managed to do the play. And I ended up enjoying it. And uh, it was funny, one of the things that I enjoyed 
was um, the opposite lead, Rosalind, was one of my best friend's girlfriends. And uh, at the very end of that play, if you know that play, uh, and like any Shakespearean comedy, there's a whole bunch of weddings, right? And there's this a beautiful kiss that takes place between Orlando and Rosalind. So I got to kiss my friend's girlfriend before he did. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the thing I got to brag about. Uh, and maybe overcame a bit of fear in the process. We're afraid of all kinds of things, at whatever age we're at. And that's maybe a bit of a trivial one. But there are way bigger ones, and some of those bigger ones end up really stopping us in our tracks in life. <laughs> and maybe I'll just enlist your help for a minute. And uh, what are some of the things that we might be afraid of? It doesn't have to be, don't necessarily tell me your fear right now, because that might be a bit intimidating, but just what are some general things that you think people are afraid of. It might be your own, but it might be somebody else's. What what kinds of things? Really a diagnosis of yeah. cancer. Sorry, miss. A diagnosis of cancer. Yeah, a diagnosis of cancer. Yeah. <laughs> Death? Yes. Not having enough money. Not having enough money. Other things. Growing old alone. Growing old alone. Having no control over your life. Having no control. Others, yeah. Heights. Heights. Yeah. Any others? Failure. Failure. Sorry, what? Being accepted. Being accepted, or afraid of not being accepted. Uh, judgment or ridicule. For students graduating not knowing what they're going to do next. Yeah, yeah. Graduating not knowing what you're going to do next. Anything else? We could probably do this for another 30 minutes. <laughs> um, just listing the number of things. Um, I think things like uh, rapid change, uh, loss of any kind, whether that's loss of life, but it could be uh, you know, loss of community or loss of a certain kind of morality that we might have come to or seen, uh, or an ethic, um, or just even losing possessions um, might be something that we fear. All kinds of things, right? Um, so let's try to keep some of those things. Maybe as we go, try to think personally about this because sometimes we can't quite identify what our own fears are, but they are there. They're underlying many of, what, of the decisions we make and the kinds of things we do, and we don't often admit them. Um, and we're going to go through this text. Because this text, uh, for me, is a story about fear and that fear being overcome. The, the first part of this uh, reading, there's 32,000 soldiers who showed up, in fact, volunteered to come and fight against this huge army. And God initially says, that's too many. Um, we need to reduce that down, because if you went with 32,000 and you won the battle, then you would think that you did it. When in fact, it's God who is going to deliver you. You're not going to deliver yourselves. You're not going to save yourselves. So we need to, to weed this number down. 
And so they start off simply by saying, well, anybody who is fearful or trembling, go home. And that takes care of 22,000 people. And more than two-thirds of the people go home. So, now, are those all the people who are afraid? No, those are the 22,000 people who admitted they were afraid. Now, that's still not enough for God. It's still too many for God. And so he wants to weed them down and has this kind of strange test about lapping up water and whoever does it this way or that way. I'm not going to talk about why God chose that or get into that, but just that he managed to uh, use that as a, a tool to get it down to 300. And so then God says, that's the 300 who are going to go and fight. Everyone else, go home. Now, I can't imagine, if I was in the 10,000, right, and 22,000 people just picked up and walked, you would notice that. I'd start to get a bit anxious about this. I can't imagine if you're one of the 300 left and it was based on how you, how you locked up water or how you drank water. Do you think these 300 are afraid now? Yeah, I think they're afraid of death, is what they're afraid of, because it's certain. They can't win with 300 against this army that can't be counted, it says. See, their camels can't be counted, it says. Not even let alone the soldiers. They have less camels than they have soldiers. Imagine the terror you would have at the prospect of, of going into that. I don't think this text is trying to teach us about, well, God found the 300 bravest warriors and decided, well, I'm going to use those 300 bravest warriors. No, it's almost as though God sets it up to, to, to instill terror in these 300 so that when he does save them, they know where to place their trust. And we get some evidence for this way of thinking in the next section because uh, God sends Gideon and he down to go and, and spy on the opponents. And he says, I'm, delivered, I'm going to deliver them into your hands, but if you're afraid, then take a servant with you, like don't go alone, because that would be scary going alone into this, but take your servant with you and go down and spy on them and listen to their conversation. And Gideon goes. So he's essentially saying, yeah, I'm afraid. So I'll go and spy, as God told me. And he goes down there, and what does he find? This sort of strange dream about a loaf of barley bread rolling down the hill or something like that, and hitting the Midianite tent, and uh, overturning it, and destroying the tent. And, uh, and he hears the interpretation that's given by one of the other Midianites to say, that is none other than Gideon and his sword, because God's using him to, to destroy us. They've heard about what's going to happen somehow. God has given this interpretation to the opponents. Gideon overhears this. And what he discovers here is that the enemy is also afraid. The enemy is afraid of Gideon and afraid of Gideon's God. Gideon discovers that the enemy is afraid of him. Who would have ever thought that? But fear is everywhere. When we think we're 
opponent is afraid. The other is afraid. The stranger is afraid. Our friends and our families and our neighbors are afraid. Everybody's afraid, this story shows us. Then there's some strategy that takes place. So Gideon goes back and he basically divides his uh, company of 300 into three regiments. Um, so 100 in each one. And it talk, there's this conversation about trumpets and jars and torches. Um, essentially, what happens here is Gideon had taken all of the trumpets and all of these uh, jars, and inside each jar is a torch. And he'd taken them all from the 32,000 initially. So essentially, you would have a trumpet and a jar for about every 100 people in your army. But he kept them all back, and now has distributed them to his 300. So what ends up happening is that's all they're armed with, right? It talks about they've got one in one hand and one in the other. They're only armed with these jars with torches in them and the trumpet. And that's how they're going to go into fight. And so they go down, and the plan is that when the signal is given, they smash the jars and the torches get lit, and everyone will see the torches, and they blow the trumpets, and they cry out for the Lord and for Gideon. What's happening is each of the 300 warriors are actually acting as only one of the 100 in a regiment would normally act. Right? So they're, they're the one who blows the trumpet, so the 100 would go to rush in. And 300 of them are doing that. So the Midianites would think, there's 30,000 people attacking us, which still might you know, not be enough to attack them, but, but it would at least cause some worry for them. You can see now why they might start to worry or panic in the middle of the night, there's this sneak attack. And there's this great noise from the hundred heralds who are blowing their trumpets and shouting out and smashing the jars. They would hear that and they'd see the lights and they would think, there's 30,000 people coming after us. And they start to panic, even though it's 300, they start to panic and they start even killing one another in their panic. And then they just flee. And uh, Gideon sort of orchestrates a way to, to chase them down, and that's when he calls in reinforcements from the other, the other tribes and the other areas. There are insurmountable odds for Gideon and his 300. But God delivers. God delivers against the odds. And what ends up happening, I think, for Gideon and his 300 is that this builds courage in the face of fear. Notice I'm not saying that it removes fear or takes it away, but it builds their courage in the face of it. They're going to do battle for another chapter. Um, there's going to be another chapter of uh, you know, tracking down the rest of the enemies and that kind of thing. And I think they were still afraid. But they now had some courage to face that fear. And they knew where to place their trust. So this, this action, what God did for them, it built their courage in the face of fear and it also built their faith. Because now they know that they can trust God and that they're supposed to trust God. We trust God because he delivers on his promises. And in this case, it was clear that only God could do what happened here. 
insurmountable odds, and God delivers. When we fast forward then to Jesus, and we look at the insurmountable odds against him in what he was doing, this should amaze us and give us pause to say thank you for what God's done. Jesus defeated sin and death, and the odds of doing that were insurmountable. In doing that, we see that Jesus is Lord of all. He's not just my Lord, but he's Lord even of the powers of sin and death itself. He is the Lord who saves, and that ought to build courage in us, and it also builds our faith. So what might we do with this? I think the first thing is what Gideon and the warriors were supposed to do, essentially, was say that this is our God. We know who we know who we're dealing with, we're putting our trust in him. And that, the way we do that as believers is that we declare that Jesus is our Lord. Jesus is my Lord, is our declaration. But then we also need to declare that Jesus is Lord over that which I fear. He's not just my Lord, but he's Lord over whatever that is. He can defeat it, or he can own it. And declare your trust in his Lordship, which means when he chooses to defeat the enemy, Will you trust him? It, it even means that it, it, it asks you to trust even his timing when you don't understand it. So well, he doesn't seem to be doing a lot of saving right now in my life. But will you say he is still Lord, he's still Lord of me and Lord of all, and I'm willing to trust and even his timing, and even what looks like isn't salvation. When you declare his lordship, you're trusting him. You're trusting him. When you declare his lordship, you're deferring to Jesus' way of doing things, not yours. That's what faith is, that's what trust is. So, how do we overcome fear? I don't think we ever get rid of it. But I think we can stand in the face of it when we know who the true Lord is. When we have Jesus as our Lord, we can stand up to fear. We maybe don't need to fear, but we still will feel it. But we can take courage in our Lord when we place our faith in 